Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our March episode on National Nutrition Month, International Happiness Day, and reading nooks for Nixon breaks. And if you don't know what Nixon is, you're about to find out. I'm Sherry Snelling, your host and a gerontologist. And I have a really exciting guest on our episode today. It's Dr. Annie Fenn, who is the creator of the Brain Health Kitchen culinary classes that you can find online on Substack. But she's now come out with a cookbook on all of her wonderful recipes to help our brains age healthfully throughout our lives. So no matter what age you are, these are the recipes you want to pick up and you're going to really enjoy our conversation with Dr. Annie Fenn coming up. And as I mentioned in Caregiver Wellness News, we are talking about nutrition, but we're also going to talk about hydration. On March 22nd, we have World Water Day, and there was a new study that just came out that talked about the importance of hydration in terms of our overall health and well-being. We're going to tell you about the findings from that study and also a measurement on how to find the perfect amount of water that you should be getting every day. So you want to stay tuned for that. And then in our welcome design news, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about Nixon. This comes from the Dutch And it's somewhat similar to Huga, which I know we've talked about in the past, but we're going to tell you a little bit about what Nixon is. And of course, March is also National Reading Month. And we just recently had March 4th was National Unplugging Day. We've got some other celebrations that are all around kind of self-care and finding that quiet time in that sanctuary. We're going to talk a little bit about that in Well Home Design News and talk also about how to create a real sanctuary reading nook in your home or in your garden and your backyard or wherever you live. So that'll be really interesting. And then, of course, we're going to end our episode, as always, with our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This one is for National Nutrition Month. We're going to talk about rainbows and sunshine and the French And we're going to tell you what that all means when it comes to your nutrition and your diet. So stay tuned. And with that, let's dive into our caregiver wellness news. So for our caregiver wellness news, as I mentioned, March is National Nutrition Month, which is why we have Dr. Annie Fenn here to talk about her wonderful new cookbook, The Brain Health Kitchen Cookbook. And she's going to tell us all about how we may be able to prevent Alzheimer's and certain cognitive decline as we age, but also what's good for our children and ourselves throughout our lives that we can do to create better brain health with food. And she does talk about food being one of the key sources of brain health. And I just wanted to do a reference back to our season two podcast because we interviewed Bonnie Kaplan, if you recall, who also had a book out called The Better Brain. And Bonnie really focused more on mental health issues, things like ADHD and autism, but also Alzheimer's and talked again about micronutrients. So between the two of them, these are probably the two best books that you can find on brain health and nutrition and diet. But Annie talks a lot about the mind diet, which is something very specific for people who, again, are looking to maintain that balance in cognitive performance, maybe hopefully prevent Alzheimer's. We still don't know distinctively if if a lot of these things will do it, but we do know that eating better is going to decrease inflammation. It's going to decrease decrease stress in our bodies. It's going to help us find that better balance. And all of those things we know are beneficial in terms of warding off some of the risk factors for Alzheimer's, including things like hypertension and diabetes and obesity and things like that. So you're going to really love this conversation with Dr. Annie Fenn coming up. But I wanted to jump into some other things. First of all, in my upcoming book, which is coming out now in just a couple months, Me Time Monday, the weekly self-care plan to balance body, brain, and a busy life. I have a whole section on nutrition 
and some of the diets that I took a look at because there's so many trends out there. And I really wanted something that has kind of a track record. So, you know, the Mediterranean diet has really been around since the 1950s. It's got a really great track record. It's the one that's mostly talked about now. The mind is a slight tweak on that. In the mind diet, you'll find out from Dr. Annie Fenn, there's a lot more leafy green vegetable servings and things like that. But that one's been around for a long time. And then I took a look at some things that I kind of coined the phrase around that I think are just really beneficial overall. They're not necessarily a specific diet plan that's out there, but you're going to learn more in the Time Monday Wellness Hack at the end of this episode. And I talk about the rainbow diet, which is about eating all the different colors of the rainbow through fruits and vegetables. I talk about the sunshine diet, which is not only foods that are kissed by the sun, if you will, but also when we should eat. During daylight hours, we know we have higher metabolism rates. So I talk a little bit about that in the wellness hack. And then how to eat like the French. And one of the things that's so wonderful about the French is not only do they take little baby bites, which is kind of part of our philosophy of Me Time Monday, baby steps. We don't have to tackle big, huge projects. We don't have to have a whole huge regime that we, you know, a routine that we, you know, all of a sudden have to start. We can take these tiny steps to help us on a better way to health. And the same thing applies to our diet and how we eat tiny bites. You know, let's not go for the frat house. How much food can we stuff into our mouths today? Let's go for those little petite bites, which is how the French eat. But the French also, they have what they call social eating. So very often French people don't eat alone. They will, you know, be doing it in a social setting where there's more conversation, there's more, you know, kind of enjoyment and savoring the meal and savoring the flavors and things like that. And they do mindful eating. So they really do think about the things they're putting into their bodies. And I think all of those are really great principles for any of us to kind of apply. Now, I also referenced that March 22nd is World Water Day, where we really recognize particularly some of the underserved countries that don't have clean water. There's an organization called water.org. I think it was started with Matt Damon, but it's really about bringing clean water to all of these different underserved countries. But there was a study that came out that I found really fascinating that applies to all of us, no matter where we live. And it's about hydration. And, you know, one of the things that we know in gerontology is that when you have younger children and when you have older adults, those two loved ones, if you will, on each end of the age spectrum are much more vulnerable to becoming dehydrated. And we have to watch for that because sometimes things like, you know, kids that are cranky and crying, you know, maybe they're in the car seat, you've been driving around or shopping for a while, or parents who seem a little bit out of it, and maybe they are are a little dizzy. All of these things can be tied to dehydration. And then for ourselves, We are also dehydrated. So I wanted to share with you some of the facts from the study and some other statistics that I have. So first of all, I call in my book, I call water nature's cleanse. You know, there's so many cleanse diets out there these days. Well, nature's cleanse is drinking enough water. That's the first thing that we should do. That's the first cleanse that you should really embrace. And the reason why is because it flushes the toxins out of the body. It helps decrease that inflammation, which we know leads to chronic illnesses. We can can address things like arthritis, angina, and asthma, and even Alzheimer's by having enough water in our bodies. You have to remember that our bodies are 70% water and our brains are 70% water. So when you don't give your body enough water, you're not functioning properly. Okay. Everything is kind of shutting down. It's like not having enough gas in the tank. You're not going to go very far. So, you know, I can't say enough about water. So let me tell you about this study. This study was actually done a couple months ago or published a couple months ago, I should say. And it was done over a 30-year period. Again, I love the research that takes a longitudinal look because now we have a lot of evidence that, okay, these things really do work. If we're looking at, you know, that long of a period, there were 11,000 people in this study. That's very rare. Often we see, you know, maybe a thousand people, sometimes even 500 people in a study. And then we're supposed to, you know, extrapolate that across everybody. Well, 11,000 is a pretty good number. And it was done with both white as well as black adults. And what it showed is that 
if you don't get the proper hydration, you can actually increase your cellular aging by 50%. Now, cellular aging is something that we know is tied to things like Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, staying hydrated becomes really important because our cells, again, are not getting enough of their nutrition, which is water, in order to function and in order to oxygenate the blood and keep everything moving. So what we know is that if you're 1% hydrated, that's what they found in this study, then you have a 5% decline in cognitive function. And they found that people were had you know a much higher percentage of being dehydrated. In fact, what we know is that there was a number here I wanted to tell you, but we know that there are millions of people, but it's between 50 and 60% of the entire population of the planet is dehydrated on a daily basis. Now that's, that's huge. That's amazing. So you think about yourself, you know, often when you do start maybe a new diet, the one thing they say is, you know, drink enough fluids and people always say, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm waterlogged. I'm drinking so much. Well, it's because you were dehydrated before. You're not used to this. Your body will regulate itself, but you really have to get that water into your body. You know, we know that in the past, it was always 64 ounces, right? Eight glasses of eight ounces. That is so low. Way, way, way too low for anybody really who's an adult. The National Academy of Medicine came out with new statistics. And what they said is that women should be drinking 91 fluid ounces of water a day, and men should consume about 125 ounces daily. Now, those are great markers to think about and certainly probably a lot more water than you're used to drinking. Try it out for a couple of days and just see what you're normally drinking and then see how many ounces that is and compare it to this 91 or 125 number. Now, I have a much more personalized measurement for you because everything now in health and wellness is really becoming a lot more personalized. We can't just do this one size fits all. All women should drink this. All men should drink this. We all have different body types. We have different levels of being active or sedentary or or whatever. Here's one that's a little bit closer to being personalized for you. What you want to do is you want to take your body weight and you want to turn that into ounces. So let's just say you weigh, you know, 160 pounds. Okay. So if you turn that into ounces, 160 ounces, now what you want to do is you want to divide that in two, divide it in half, you get 80 ounces. That's the number for you that's a perfect amount of water daily. Now, if you weigh 200 pounds, it's going to be 100 ounces or whatever. So, you know, if you do that, it's a little bit more personalized to you. Sometimes, you know, you will feel like you're drinking too much. If you don't weigh that much and you're trying to hit that 125 number, if you're a man and maybe, you you know, you're a slider man, you only weigh 170 pounds or 180 pounds, you may not need that 125. So take that number and do that measurement. And at least that's going to get you a lot closer to be getting the hydration that you need. And again, hydration helps with body temperature. It helps with sleep at night because again, it helps the circadian rhythms, helps that body temperature. So we lower that at night. Water has a very key role in our overall health and wellness. And I just, you know, can't say enough about it. So I wanted to really definitely bring that to you and make sure that we're getting enough water into our daily routines. So with that, we're going to go into my interview with Dr. Annie Fenn. It was a delight. I just want to give you a little personal. I actually went to a book signing for Annie and she's done a lot of work with Maria Shriver and the Cleveland Clinic now on the women's Alzheimer's movement. I know she's done a lot of work with Lauren Miller Rogan and Seth Rogan for Hilarity for Charity and a lot of other organizations. And she's going to tell you her story about how she went from being an OBGYN to becoming a culinary expert and teaching classes around brain health recipes. And you can find her on Substack. We're going to have all of the links to how you can find Annie's classes and her book and everything on our episode guide page. But I think you're going to really enjoy this interview with Dr. Annie Fenn of the Brain Health Kitchen Cookbook. Here it is. So I am really thrilled to have our guest on today, Annie Fenn, who is not only the author of this wonderful, and I'm going to hold it up, this brand new cookbook, the Brain Health Kitchen Cookbook, which she's going to talk to us about today. But she's also got this really amazing backstory and lots of really good information to share. So Annie, it's a thrill to have you on Caregiving Club on air. Thank you, Sherry. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yes. Well, we always ask our guests, first question is, where are we talking to you from today? I am at home in Jackson, Wyoming. 
which is beautiful. Now, are you, have you guys gotten your snow and everything? Are you in the middle of all the beautiful? We have had an incredible winter. We actually got about three feet of snow in the last couple of days. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like a winter wonderland out there. Right. Well, it is such a beautiful area of the country and we're excited to have you on. You're our first guest from Wyoming and we're trying to have experts from every state. So thank you for being our representative there. <laughs> anyway, before we dive into all of your wonderful recipes and the science that you have behind the recipes in your cookbook, I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your backstory because it's so interesting, your journey from being a doctor to having a culinary school and now with this new book. So tell us a little bit about that background. Oh, sure. So I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I went to medical school, did my residency in Chicago, was fully expecting to stay in Chicago and practice. And then my husband and I had this crazy idea of moving to Jackson Hole, Wyoming instead. So I moved out here and I started a medical practice. And this was back in 1994. There weren't that many female OBGYNs back then. And so I became very busy. I practiced here for 20 years. And at that point, even though I absolutely loved, loved, loved my practice, my patients, everything about it, I don't know. I was just itching for a little bit of a change. It's a very difficult routine for doctors to go through day after day, year after year. It's an unhealthy lifestyle. I wasn't sleeping very much. I was delivering babies, obviously. Anyways, so I just had always had this dream of going to culinary school because I've always been a cook and I've been cooking my own meals since I was a teenager. And I've always loved and obsessed over different types of cuisines. So that's what I did. I I gave up my medical practice. I went to culinary school and then I came back into my community and was teaching people how to eat better. Because I actually really felt many of the years I was practicing that the way people eat is at the root of a lot of chronic diseases, even the ones I was seeing as a gynecologist. So I just want people to eat better. I wanted them to have the skills to eat really delicious food. And so I was teaching cooking at my local community college as a culinary instructor and around that time, so this is around 2015, my mom was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which many of your listeners probably know is can be an early stage of Alzheimer's. And that's what it was for her. So I started to do a deep dive into all the scientific literature pertaining to how we eat and how our brain performs with age. And can you follow a certain dietary pattern and actually slow down the progression of mild cognitive impairment? And I was really happy to find a large body of scientific evidence that showed that there are dietary patterns that can slow down you know, age-related cognitive decline. And so there was so much evidence that I decided to launch the Brain Health Kitchen as a cooking school and focus specifically on helping people eat better to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Well, and I know you've had wonderful success for the school. I know you've worked with the Alzheimer's Association and Rhea Shriver's Women's Alzheimer's Movement and a lot of other really wonderful groups out there. I'm going to paraphrase Hippocrates, I think it was, who said food is medicine. And so you've kind of combined your two passions into this cookbook. But, you know, tell us a little bit about that science, because I think that is so important. These are not just beautiful, savory, wonderful recipes, but you know, there really is some science behind how it helps our brain and cognitive health. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So the Brain Health Kitchen book is really a science-based cookbook. I wanted it to be a cookbook that people would open up and go, oh, I want to make that for dinner tonight. I want to make the pear and ginger breakfast crisp for breakfast tomorrow. So I wanted to have that sort of appeal, you know, bringing in people in through the love of food and the joy of cooking. But there's really a ton of science behind this. And the science started with the studies of the Mediterranean dietary patterns, how people eat in the countries around the Mediterranean Sea, because they are famous for longevity. A lot of communities there have more centenarians than any place else in the world. And these are dementia-free centenarians. These are centenarians who are doing very, very well. So the Mediterranean diet has been very, very well studied. And a study that came out of Rush University in 2015 was really part of the impetus for me to start the Brain Health Kitchen in the first place, too. What the Rush University researchers did is they asked the question, now we know the Mediterranean diet is good for preventing heart disease, such as heart attack and stroke. And there's been some evidence showing that it reduces Alzheimer's risk. But what if you took the Mediterranean diet and you made it more brain specific? 
And that's what they did. And they came up with a mind diet, the M-I-N-D diet. And what they showed with the mind diet in their cohort of almost a thousand people in the greater Chicago area is that following this dietary pattern could reduce dementia risk, Alzheimer's risk specifically, by as much as 53%. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And I know everybody listening is, you know, we talk so often about we're not really sure what might prevent Alzheimer's, but we do know that a lot of these lifestyle choices that we make can certainly help us and it helps our overall health. Tell us a little bit about what are the principles then of this mind diet? What are the basics that you have throughout your recipes in the book? Well, it's very simple because the Russian universities elegantly divided food into 10 brain healthy food groups and five brain unhealthy ones. And the approach is also very user-friendly because people come to, you know, these studies with all different backgrounds and ways of eating. And what they're saying is eat more of these brain-healthy food groups, choose less of these brain-unfriendly ones. And they showed that the people that adhere to the diet most rigidly, you know, were like really strict about it, had the best success. But the people that they actually follow the diet maybe half the time, because changing dietary habits is really hard, they still have. 37% risk reduction in Alzheimer's. Wow. So it tells us that small changes are really, really important and that it's a process that sometimes can take time. But the 10 brain healthy food groups are really a good teachable way to learn about the simple things you can do to prevent Alzheimer's. For example, the Mediterranean diet, if you can picture the Mediterranean dietary pyramid, you know, the bottom of the pyramid is a lot of fruits and vegetables, right? As well as other plant foods like legumes and beans, whole grains, nuts and seeds, spices. So the mind diet also honored that it's primarily a plant-based diet. The first, you know, five or six food groups are plant-based, such as leafy greens, berries, vegetables, nuts and seeds, beans and legumes, whole grains. This is sort of like the foundation of the brain protective diet, so to speak. But what the mind diet did differently than Mediterranean diet is they singled out berries as its own food group. Okay. Whereas in the Mediterranean dietary pattern, you know, it just says eat a lot of fruit, right? It could be orange, it could be a lemon, it could be whatever. But they chose berries because berries has its own pile of data to show that it helps protect your memory. And that's because it contains certain nutrients from the plants called anthocyanins. These are the things that make berries purple, red, or black, or blue. And these little plant pigments actually help fight oxidative stress in the brain. So they singled out berries saying you should get two half cup servings of berries a week. And based on lots of studies that helps protect the brain from Alzheimer's later. Which is wonderful. I was reading something interesting that an avocado is actually considered part of the berry group, which I did not know, I guess, because of the way it's grown or whatever. You know, some of the nutrients that we need, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about micronutrients being brain healthy, vitamins, you know, minerals and things. Is there anything specific that you can share in terms of the recipes and what people should be thinking of? And I love how you've also grouped the food into different color groups throughout the cookbook, which makes it really helpful too. Right, right. Thank you. Well, micronutrients are very important. And, you know, the way I organized the cookbook, originally I thought I was writing a cookbook based on the mind diet study, but that was back in 2015. And here we are in 2023. And there've been a lot of studies since then that I have been looking at. And so I, I changed some of the food groups based on the Mind Diet study, but it's still loosely based on it. For example, there's a whole chapter on berries, like we just talked about. There's a whole chapter on leafy greens. Leafy greens is considered a separate food group from vegetables because like berries, it has all these other studies saying that it's brain protective. There's a chapter on vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes. You get the picture. So I wanted to do that so that if there is some sort of micronutrient deficiency you might have in your diet, let's say, for example, you don't really love leafy greens. People just aren't salad people, right? That means you could be deficient in vitamin K, which is an incredibly important micronutrient for brain health. So I want you to open up the leafy greens chapter and go, well, I don't really love salad, but I would eat that spinach and artichoke dip. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
know, all the ways to get leafy greens and just eating a salad. You can get them in a smoothie, you can get them in a dip, you can get them in a pesto, things like that. Which is what I love about the cookbook, because again, as you said, you may, like, I'm not a Brussels sprouts fan. So even though the pictures look beautiful, I go, oh, but then you give options. You give, okay, so you could do it this way, or you could replace that with this or whatever, which is really really great. And I think really helpful. I was also happy to see eggs are okay. You know, we've been told for so many years, oh, eggs are bad, or at least, you know, egg yolks and all that. seems like eggs are making a bit of a comeback. I know you've included several of those in your recipes. Yes. I actually have a chapter on meat, poultry, and eggs. And, you know, if you're familiar with the Mind Diet study, they don't even discuss eggs. And the reason was I got to know Dr. Martha Claire Morris, who was a lead researcher on this study years ago. And when I asked her why they don't even put any egg recommendations in there, she says it's just too controversial. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just so confusing for people because originally, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, doctors were telling patients to limit egg consumption for fear of cholesterol. Now we know that dietary cholesterol is not a big part of having elevated blood cholesterol. Having too much saturated fat in the diet is what raises your blood cholesterol, such as your LDL, the harmful cholesterol in your blood. So now that we know that, and that only 15% of people actually respond to dietary cholesterol, the American Heart Association came out saying that eggs are actually okay. And nobody wants to limit egg intake in part because it's a very inexpensive source of nutrients and protein for a large part of the population. Eggs, well, they're kind of expensive now, but (laughs) they've been, you know, a fairly cheap source of protein. And that's a very important point. People need to have good, clean sources of protein and nutrients. The brain health status on eggs is that eggs are beneficial of brain health because number one, they contain omega-3 fatty acids from the yolk And they contain two brain health nutrients that people are often deficient in, choline and lutein. So those two things you get from the yolk. So I'm not an advocate of just eating egg whites unless, of course, you have a cholesterol issue that you're working on with your doctor and you both have determined that it's related to your diet. Sure. So, you know, I know obviously everything in the cookbook is important for brain health, but if you were to tell the audience there's absolutely one thing you have to have in your diet that is really going to help your brain health. What would that be? It's not one thing. I can't even say one thing because honestly, you get into trouble when you start talking about superfoods or like, this is the most important thing you can do. It's really a system. It's a system of eating. And there are food groups that you can eliminate. Like if you eliminate meat, poultry, and eggs, that entire chapter of my book, that entire food group, your brain will still thrive. You can be a very brain healthy vegetarian or vegan. You have to pay attention to certain things, of course, like getting maybe omega-3 fatty acids from a supplement, not getting them from fish or seafood. But it's really more of a system of including something from each food group and having the balance of all those nutrients working for you. Which is really important. I think you're right. You know, it's not like, okay, this is the miracle food. Just eat this. It really is having that balance. And I've read other things about eating the rainbow, which is going to, you know, really prompt you to get into some of these different colored fruits and vegetables that we often forget about. So I think that's really great. That's such a good point about eating the rainbow because, you know, registered dietitians have been telling us this forever, right? And now science is starting to figure out why is it that colorful foods are good for you? And the answer is flavonoids. Flavonoids are those plant nutrients, like I was talking about with berries, that fight oxidative stress in the brain. And there's been studies looking at foods through the lens of their flavonoid content. And these are plant foods that are colorful. It's like, you know, the broccolis and all the different red and yellow and orange foods at the grocery store. And people that consume more flavonoid-rich foods, they also have a risk of 50% less Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Well, I started doing that just for fun. I would check off every day, like, okay, what colors have I eaten today? You know, interestingly, the blue and the purples weren't so bad because I love blueberries and I love blackberries. You know, I know there's not a lot of foods that are those colors, but it was kind of fun. It was a fun way to kind of track, you know, all the things you're eating. And it's a wonderful way to teach children how to eat well. 
Absolutely. You and I met and I was so grateful that I got a signed copy of your book at your book signing. You did a wonderful cooking demonstration and oh my gosh, the food was amazing. It's like, I just want you to come be in my kitchen and cook all your recipes (laughs) for me. (laughs) You shared some really great things. And one of the things is there was a bit of an older audience there. And I know that as we get older, you know, we start to lose a little bit of our taste buds and we start to salt things a little bit more or put more sugar in because we don't really, you know, get that taste as much. What would be the things that you would recommend as you age in terms of not putting some of those bad things into your food, but getting it through other flavors? Well, one of the brain healthy food groups, both in the Mind Diet study and in my book is extra virgin olive oil. And I think if everyone could go through their pantries and get rid of the oils that are not as brain healthy because they don't have the right kind of fats or they have too many inflammatory ingredients and just use extra virgin olive oil in all of your cooking, like they do in Mediterranean countries. It adds so much to the flavor of food without adding salt. Food has to have fat to be satiating. So I think a lot of the pitfalls when people start to try to eat like what you think of as healthy is that it's devoid of fat and therefore it's not satisfying, not satiating enough to be like a long-term sustainable way of eating. We've learned about fat and brain health is that, you know, we want your diet to be low in saturated fats. These are the fats from, you know, like coconut oil and butter and cheese and a lot of dairy products and red meats. Those should be limited in a brain healthy diet because those are directly associated with increased Alzheimer's risk. But the brain healthy diet is actually really rich in brain friendly fats. These are the mono and polyunsaturated fats you get from fish and seafood, from olive oil, from avocado, some of those foods, nuts and seeds. So I would say that adding richness with say, I use cashew cream a lot instead of dairy products. It adds mono and saturated fats, also the satiating richness. I highly recommend olive oil, It's not just that it makes food taste better. I think of it as a conduit to help you absorb all the vitamins and minerals in the food. I think that's part of the secret sauce of the Mediterranean diet is that there's, they drizzle a little bit of olive oil on everything and it really helps you absorb nutrients better. Well, and one of the demonstrations that you gave us at this event was how to preserve lemons, which I just thought was so fascinating. And I'm going to do that this weekend, by the way. And it was so good because you served us a dish within kind of the the lemon zest, if you will, on top. And it was just so good. Yeah, preserved lemons are a tradition, you know, many, many parts of the world. And I like it because it becomes a lacto-fermented food once they've been pickled in salt and lemon juice. And that brings up the whole topic of developing a healthy gut microbiome. We know that to have a healthy brain, you have to have a healthy gut. And the science is really building on this very rapidly. One reason you need to have a lot of different plant foods in your diet is because you need to provide a lot of fiber to the gut microbiota that live in your intestinal tract. And also eating fermented foods can help speed up that process. So preserved lemons are not only delicious, they can also be a substitute for salt in food, which makes them really handy for an older population that may be watching their salt intake. And also, you know, your gut loves them. Well, and it was just, it was easy to do. And I think that's one of the things I know a lot of our listeners, they're either family caregivers or they're they're juggling caring for kids and maybe older loved ones. And we all have so little time in our day, it seems. So what are your secret tips on, I look at this beautiful cookbook, how can I do this and not have to be preparing all day or half the day to, to create these meals? What can I do that will make it easy? Well, I really grappled with this when I was writing the cookbook because, you know, I'm a busy person as well. And cooking everything from scratch just means that you're in the kitchen constantly and running to the store constantly. It's really not sustainable. So I lean on a lot of minimally processed foods in my cooking. For example, you know, like marinara sauce from a jar. Some of those are notorious for being high in sugar and having some unhealthy oils, but it's really easy to learn how to read a nutrition label. And I go into that in detail in the book. So you want to get a tomato sauce that doesn't have added sugar. There should be a very short ingredient list. And if you find that, and I call out a bunch of brands just to make it easier for people (laughs) in the book. But a jar of tomato sauce can really like fast track your dinner. You know, I have a soup that I use that's just really like you have to chop up a couple things. Then you add some marinara sauce and it really just makes it. Another minimally processed food I use a lot is frozen vegetables. Butternut squash, you can buy frozen already cubed. Everyone loves butternut squash, but nobody likes to bring that squash home and cut it up. 
because <laughs> it's really hard. And it's right. always tight. You know, there's all sorts of barriers. So I love frozen squash. It's not cooked. It's raw, so you have to cook it. But it's really easy to either steam it in the microwave. I have a recipe for stuffed poblano peppers where I basically take a can of black beans. I take some butternut squash from the freezer and some salsa verde from a jar, another one of my favorite minimally processed foods. And I can assemble this dish in literally no time and get it in the oven. Right. Well, and I was really excited to hear you say that frozen foods are not so bad, particularly like, you know, the veggies and things, because the minute we hear frozen, we think, oh, yeah, not good, you know, because it's got preservatives. But it was great to hear you say, yeah, read the label, but it can actually be as healthful, you know, sometimes as the fresh stuff. Yeah, most of these vegetables are frozen, you know, while they're in season. Whereas like here in Wyoming in February, I'm not getting vegetables in season. (laughs) I'm getting vegetables from South America and California. But like another thing I really love is frozen kale and buy it in a bag where it's loose leaf. And so you can take a handful of that kale and throw it in a soup, throw it in a stew, throw it in a pan and saute it, make an omelet out of it, all sorts of things. You can make a smoothie out of it. So I like these frozen greens too. Yeah, definitely. They're way more nutritious than the ones I'm getting at the grocery store right now. Right. Now, you know, a lot of things that we've heard lately in terms of just how to eat, there's a lot of discussion around intermittent fasting that will help cognitive health or eating during daylight hours. Are there any thoughts that you have in just in terms of how we eat? Yeah, it's a good question. The jury is still out on intermittent fasting, whether it's a a useful strategy to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. There is a lot of data on this topic, mostly from animal studies, showing that when you you know only eat during certain hours during the day, say like 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., and then you let your body rest and you're not eating the rest of the day, there's certain brain health benefits. And I truly believe in the brain health benefits, but I'm not sold on the fact that it can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. I think it's a very individual thing. And there's a couple of benefits you can get from intermittent fasting. Like if it agrees with you to only eat for six to eight hours a day, then you're probably going to be consuming less calories. And I don't talk about calories a lot in my book because I I just like wanting people to be eating right. joyfully. <laughs> and it's really hard to overeat brain healthy food, honestly. But you know, most people do eat a little bit too much and most people are struggling a little bit with weight. And intermittent fasting is a good strategy to lose weight and get to a healthy weight. So there's that. And number two, if you're limiting your food intake in the evenings, you're likely to sleep better. And high quality sleep is definitely associated with reduced dementia risk. And the reason is that while we sleep, our brain cleans up from certain toxins that are accumulating every day, like amyloid protein, one of the proteins that gets sticky and sticks to the brain and gloms up and, you know, is one of the pathological features of Alzheimer's. So my rule of thumb is not to eat three hours before going to sleep. And that gives your brain and your body a chance to go into cleanup mode instead. Which is a great, that's a great tip. We love that one. And last, you know, um, it's been so great talking to you, but remind me, I think you said that your family, at least one side of your family was Italian and you loved cooking from a young age. And we know that, you know, sometimes creating these recipes can also create kind of a social health. You know, we get our kids involved or maybe we have the grandparents over and everybody kind of helps out or does this or that. But talk a little bit about the social aspect of eating and how important that is to brain health. Oh, yes. I love that you brought this up. You know, I think there's an epidemic of loneliness in America now where, you know, especially some people in older age groups are eating by themselves and you know, food is meant to be enjoyed in a social structure. I think part of the success of the Mediterranean diet in those countries is that they have a system in which they can embrace the elderly in community around the table. And I think that's so important. It's just harder for us in the U.S. because we're all spread out. So there's a lot of ways to do that. I'm starting to do Zoom cooking classes with my newsletter subscribers. Like this Sunday, I'm going to have them all over to my kitchen, you know, virtually, of course. And we're going to cook from the book and everyone is welcome to join on that. And that's going to be a regular feature that I'll be offering as part of my newsletter and just things like that. Anything you can do to, you know, you can do your own little cooking club with your friends. You can say, let's cook together on Sunday night. If they can't come to your house, then you can send them a Zoom link. You can all, or FaceTime together. And I think that cooking together really 
impresses on people that food is more than just food. Food is nourishing, not just your body, but it's definitely part of cultivating your emotional health too. Right. And I love that. So Annie, has there anything we haven't covered that you feel is really important for the audience to know? Well, you know, I think that it's a little bit overwhelming when people maybe start thinking about, I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to be brain healthy from here on in. And I think that's great. I think it's important to have a brain health mindset, meaning you should have a reason why this is important to you because you'll be more successful in your efforts to do so. But also like everyone's brain health pyramid is going to look a little bit different. I created a brain health pyramid in the book based on the mind diet and other studies. It's going to look different based on your ethnic background. For example, an Asian American brain healthy pyramid is going to look different than a Mediterranean one. It's not that the Mediterranean one is better. It's just that it's been more studied. We don't have studies on some of these other ethnic heritage diets like African-American, Asian-American, Latin American. So I think what you do is you start with the foods that you love that are part of, you know, what's important to you is maybe as part of your heritage, maybe it's some of the food that you grew up with. Maybe it's just food that connects you to the people in your community because you know some farmers and they give you honey or you know someone who raises lamb and that's like, you know, the only meat that you eat because you know these farmers, right? Right. What you have that makes sense to you that you really like to eat and that you like to cook and then build it up and then just pay attention to the 10 brain healthy food groups and make sure you're not missing out on any of those. Like if you're not a bean eater, I would challenge you to open up my book or another book that has beans in it and just find something that you really like. Right. You don't want to miss out. You want to have any holes in your diet when it comes to brain. Well, and I love that because, you know, so often we hear new things, whether it's new diets or, you know, new trends in this, whatever, and it's kind of this one size fits all. And what you're saying is take the information and make it work for you because so often those one size fits all, we try it for a week and then it's like, it's not working. I'm not talking (laughs) about a diet that you go on in January and you go off in February. Right. Exactly. I want everyone to age with healthy, vibrant brains. And that means finding a dietary pattern that you love, and then building a lifestyle around it. Right. That's the only way to make it sustainable. Which is phenomenal. So I'm going to hold the book up one more time for those of you who are watching on Zoom, The Brain Health Kitchen, beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous cookbook with so many great recipes in it. Annie, tell us where our listeners can, first of all, buy the book, but also find out a little bit more from you, sign up for your newsletter, and maybe some of these virtual cooking sessions that you're doing. Yes, I would love to have everyone join me. Anyways, the book is by Artisan Books. I have a fabulous publisher. They do the most beautiful cookbooks. You can get it anywhere. Books are sold and also online. On my website, brainhealthkitchen.com, there's a book tab. And if you want to buy the book from an independent bookstore, you can go on there and find one of our partners. It's being widely distributed, so that's great. On that website, brainhealthkitchen.com, there's more than 100 free recipes. If you don't want to buy the book, that's not in your budget, or you already have too many books, go to the website. You can start looking and, and just see what interests you and start dabbling in brain healthy recipes and read some of the head notes for these recipes explains why they're brain healthy. And then finally, you can find me on Instagram at Brain Health Kitchen. I do a lot of educational posts over there. Sometimes I share recipes too, and I share where I'm out and about in the world. And my newsletter is at brainhealthkitchen.substack.com. And there's a free newsletter monthly. There's also a tiered subscription where you can pay a little bit every month to get more information. And I started writing this newsletter because I wanted to be more in contact with the people that are interested in this topic. It's great to get a book out there and it's great for people to read the book and get excited about it. But I want to give people tips like twice a week, just little short things that you can read that can constantly reinforce this idea of how to take care of your brain. And we're doing a lot of fun things over there, like comment threads and Zoom classes. And so everyone is welcome to join. Yep. We subscribe to that at Caregiving Club. Little baby steps is what it takes. You you know, you don't have to bite off everything and conquer the world. You can just take a little bit of time to do something that's good for you. And so thank you so much, Annie. It's been a delight talking to you. And it was so wonderful meeting you in person. I feel so honored. I've got a copy of your book that's signed. It was fun to meet you too. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you for being on the podcast. We really appreciate talking to you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so wasn't that a great interview with Dr. Annie Finn? She's just a delight. 
the cookbook is beautiful and it's got really terrific recipes. I've already tried out a couple of them, which are really fantastic. So I, you know, really thank her for being on the episode. And now we're into well home design news. And, you know, I mentioned earlier on that in March, we celebrated on March 4th, we had National Unplugging Day. March 11th was National Daydreaming Day. It's also National Reading Month. So, you know, there's a lot of things around kind of taking a little self-care time, finding happiness on March 21st, International Happiness Day, and also reading. And I thought that was kind of a fascinating discussion around how do we bring those things together. And, you know, I've talked about, and I wrote my first book about Huga, which is from the Danish people, and it really translates into coziness. And what Huga is all about is really, again, unplugging, taking time away from all the technology and all the noise pollution in our lives and finding things like, you know, just cozying up to a warm fire, particularly during these, these winter months, reading a book, playing an old fashioned board game, not doing anything that's really digital, if you will, or, or technology related, but a little bit more of that disconnect and that unplugging. So now I'm going to tell you about something called Nixon. If you have not heard of Nixon, it is N-I-K-S-E-N. This actually comes from the Dutch. And this literally means doing nothing. So it's not even just unplugging and then reading a book or having some tea or some cocoa by the fire. This is about really allowing yourself and giving yourself that permission to let your mind wander. And, you know, we talked about daydreaming in the last episode, so I'm not going to repeat myself, but we know that daydreaming has a lot of mental health benefits. It it helps us be more productive and creative, allows us to be flexible in our thinking and find new solutions to problems that we're having. And so Nixon is really a component of that. And it's where you take moments out of your day, you just kind of stare out the window. Maybe, you know, you look at a bird in a tree or you watch a leaf that's falling to the ground, whatever it is. I love nature. So I always bring those into my stories. But Or it could be just lying on a couch or lying somewhere and thinking about a fantasy world, you know, like a fantasy life or whatever. But that's what Nixon is all about. You know, I love these Nordic countries because they really have us beat when it comes to really disconnecting from the stress in our lives and saying, enough, I've got to get away from this and just let my mind wander for a bit. I think it's a really interesting kind of new trend. I think it's when you're going to be hearing about just as much as Huga. When I first wrote about it, nobody was really talking about it. Now there's books and you know, TV specials and all kinds of things, tons of articles on it. I think you're going to say the same thing now with Nixon and particularly because we all need that mental health break. So I connected it to National Reading Month, which is in March, because I love little cozy spots. I think this comes from my childhood. I may have mentioned in an earlier episode once that my brother and I, when we were younger, we would try to find these cupboards that we could literally like squeeze ourselves into and not shut the door like, you know, so we're suffocating, but more just like having this little cave-like environment. And, you know, kids love tents and little places that they can almost like the cave environments. I think that there's something about that that makes us feel secure and comforting, probably goes back to the ancient brain that I talk about all the time when we lived in those types of environments. But, you know, having a little reading nook, and it could be anything from a hammock that's, you know, out in your yard. It could be a little space maybe underneath your staircase. Maybe you've quasi turned that into a little desk area or a little seating area. Maybe it's a little, you know, a little seating nook in your bedroom or a lovely chair in your bedroom, whatever it is that you can pull away from your work. If you work from home or if you come home from a hard day of work, you can go and find this little sanctuary space, this little reading nook. And this is where you can practice Nixon. You don't have to take a book. You don't have to read. You can literally just let your mind wander, create the stories in your mind, make up those fantasies. One of my best friends and I used to laugh because she always was thinking about songs and she would come up with the stories behind the songs. This is before MTV, by the way. And I told her, I said, you could have been a billionaire, you know, you should have turned that into what MTV wound up doing. But, you know, we all love these fantasy worlds where we make up stories in our minds. And I think when we allow ourselves to do that, it does give us a sigh of relief. It gives us that stress relief, that little self-care moment or minutes or whatever it is that we all need. So practice a little Nixon. I also am going to have a link to an article I wrote about reading nooks. I have some beautiful images that I 
curated from different interior designers on how to create the best reading nooks in your home environment. So you can check that out. And then I also just want to throw a little bit in there about the reading part of this, because there was a neuroscientist that was recently interviewed on CNBC, and I thought this was fascinating. And he was talking about how brain health wise, the best books for us to read are fiction, fiction novels. And the reason why is because there is a narrative through line. There's a consistent linear story that we have to follow. We have to remember what happened to our hero or heroine and all the characters until we go to the next chapter or whatever. We have to keep all those memories locked in our brain. And one of the things he talked about is that people who have very early stage Alzheimer's where there really are no other signs, you know, we know that we have Alzheimer's now in our brains for 10 to 15 years before any of these first warning signs start to really show, what he finds is that people who stop reading fiction are doing it because they're not able to keep that storyline going. They can't follow the characters. They forget the next day what happened. And then they have to go back and reread the chapter. And then they just give it up altogether because, you know, that is a very satisfying... Anyway, I just wanted to bring this to your attention because obviously it could be a warning sign if you find that your loved ones aren't reading those types of books anymore. And also for yourself, I think it's interesting because it helps with our brain health to kind of follow those storylines. So I'm a big nonfiction book reader. I buy all kinds of, you know, books on science and brain health and, you know, all these other things that I'm studying and researching. I have to remind myself to go back to some of the biographies that I love or some of the the nonfiction books that I love. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention and also give a shout out to my mom because my mom actually was reading some of my book pages before it gets published. And I wrote about this in the book and she said, you know what, I've got to go find a good fiction book. I feel like I'm not reading as much anymore. So good for you, mom you know, get back into that fiction reading. So anyway, with that, we're going to go to our Me Time Monday wellness hack for this episode. And as I mentioned, March is National Nutrition Month, as you know. So I'm going to give you all kinds of tips about the rainbow and sunshine and eating like the French and little hacks that you can do to create better nutrition and better diet for you that will bring about better wellness. And here's our Me Time Monday wellness hack. I'm Sherry Snelling and welcome to our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This episode's Wellness Hack, we are talking about National Nutrition Month to help fuel our bodies and our brains. Health is about choices and it's all tied to our brains. You know, so much of what makes us healthy and happy are in the choices we make. We have long known that good nutrition is tied to energy, stamina, and feeling good. But we often don't think about how food is tied to our mental and emotional health. For some, indulging is part of the reward center of the brain, that rush of dopamine that makes us feel good for the moment. If I do this, then I get a cookie or french fries. For others, it is part of the body and brain stress response. We feel pressured or anxious, so we soothe ourselves and our emotions with food. This is why so many diet and nutrition services, from Weight Watchers to Noom, use psychological and behavioral science to moderate food intake and teach us more about how our brains are the key to healthful nutrition. It's all in the choices, and the choices are in our heads, not in our stomachs. So our first hack for better brain and physical health is part of our year of living colorfully campaign here at Caregiving Club. And we are talking about eating the rainbow. What is great about visualizing the rainbow as you plan meals or decide what to eat, you don't see browns or beiges, which are often the colors of packaged foods like cookies or potato chips or pasta. You see apples and tomatoes and oranges and bananas and green bell peppers and grapes and blueberries and eggplant, all healthful and good for various brain and body functions. Each plant food contains many phytochemicals, vitamins, minerals, and other micronutrients that work to improve your health. But the key is variety. Each phytochemical provides different health benefits so we can maximize our health by getting a variety of these colorful phytochemicals and foods and veggies into our daily diet. By filling your diet with colorful fruits and veggies, you also fill up faster, so you chase away those hunger pains between meals. Not only does visualizing the rainbow 
keep you on track for the choices that make you feel and perform better, it plays into something psychologists have studied for decades. And that is when you insert fun into a behavior habit that is good for you, it increases the chance of making those choices or activities more healthful. When something is fun, we stick to it and eating the rainbow is no exception. So let's go through all these different wonderful colors. First of all, red equals lycopene, and that keeps our heart healthy and decreases risk of stroke. It prevents and even fights cancer, especially prostate and breast cancer. It's good for urinary tract health and for memory. When free radical levels outnumber antioxidant levels, they can create oxidative stress in your body. This stress is linked to certain chronic diseases such as cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and Alzheimer's. And it may lower heart disease by 26% and stroke prevention by 31% by eating more lycopene. Mostly red and pink foods, such as tomatoes, grapefruit, and watermelon are great sources of lycopene. Tomato products that have been processed contain lycopene that is much better absorbed than that in fresh tomatoes. So things like tomato paste, tomato sauce. Just look out for the sugar in the tomato sauce that you want to try to avoid. So the next one is orange and yellow, which are carotenoids. Now, orange and yellow foods decrease inflammation in the body and help prevent cancer because it's very high in antioxidants. It keeps our immune system strong and our skin healthy. It's good for our vision. One study found it reduces age-related macular degeneration by 25% and not getting enough carotenoids, which offer high levels of vitamin A, can lead to chronic dry eye, something that almost 5 million people over the age of 50 suffer with. And it's good for lowering inflammation and best absorbed when eaten with good fats, such as avocado or olive oil. So foods that are high in carotenoids and vitamin A are carrots, cantaloupe, oranges, mandarins, mangoes, papaya, pumpkin, and yams. The fact that fruit was found to be protective against the development of diabetes mellitus type 2 in a seven-year study, over 500,000 participants showed that carotenoids played a huge role in that protection against diabetes. So the next color is green, which is our lutins. So the lutins protect our eyes by preventing cataracts and slowing that age-related macular degeneration, which is natural worsening of eyesight as we get older. Most people over the age of 50 or 60 will either have cataracts or some type of macular degeneration. So these green lutein foods also contain folic acid, which is an important nutrient for having healthy babies because it prevents neural tube defects. And it also keeps our bones, teeth, and nails strong and also prevents blood clots. Most adults only get 30% of the recommended daily dose of six milligrams a day of lutein. Now this aids our brain health because it helps with memory, learning efficiency, and verbal fluency. And of course, the MIND diet, which is recommended to promote better brain health and prevent Alzheimer's, says seven servings of leafy green vegetables a day will do it. So things like kale, spinach, broccoli, parsley, kiwis, green peppers, and even avocados. Now, avocados promote good eye health. And in fact, when Bugs Bunny munched on carrots, which are also good for eye health. Maybe you should have snacked on guacamole instead, made from avocados. Avocados have been shown to be as beneficial for eye health as carrots because they filter harmful blue light that attack the healthy cells in your eyes from too much screen time and other overuse of digital devices. A single ounce of avocado gives you eight times the amount of lutein needed per day compared to most lutein or multivitamin supplements. Some wonder if the avocado is a fruit or a vegetable. Actually, the avocado is a berry. Avocados are considered a fruit because they fit all of the botanical criteria for a berry. Now our next color is blue and purple, which are anthocyanins. So these help us age gracefully by improving our memory and keeping our skin looking young. They also reduce blood pressure and lower the risk of stroke and heart disease. And they help fight cancers, especially those in the GI tract, which is your mouth, your esophagus, and your colon. Anthocyanins have shown to modulate the composition of the gut microbiome. 
and may have overlapping mechanisms in the prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and age-related bone loss. So good anthocyanin foods are eggplant, purple cabbage, blue cauliflower, figs, grapes, and blue and black berries. Now let's go into the types of diets for our hack number two. What is good for you? Well, first of all, embracing a Mediterranean style diet is something that's been around since the 1950s. Now it was popularized in the 80s and 90s by a book called The Blue Zones, Lessons on Living Longer from the People Who Have Lived the Longest by Dan Bootner. And he traveled the world looking at pockets of centenarians, people who lived over 100 and beyond. And he found that a Mediterranean diet tended to be the diet that many of these people embraced for longevity. So while the Blue Zones was not all about nutrition, in fact, there were a lot of elements like intergenerational relationships, spirituality, and a sense of community that all play huge roles in our living longer quest. Eating like they do in one of the Blue Zones, which was in Sardinia, Italy, as well as places like Greece and Spain, took hold and became a diet guide that is still very popular today. So the basics of the Mediterranean diet are this, plenty of fruits and vegetables, breads and other grains, potatoes, beans, nuts, and seeds on a daily basis. Olive oil is a staple. It's a primary fat source, and this can also be found from olives, avocados, and peanut butter. Dairy products such as eggs and other dairy, as well as fish and poultry, you wanna eat in low to moderate amounts weekly, and then just a small four ounces of red wine a day is okay in the Mediterranean diet. What's not allowed are any kind of processed red meats, hot dogs, for instance, no heavily processed foods like frozen meals that have a lot of sodium, no refined grains, no alcohol besides the red wine that we mentioned, and butter and refined processed or hydrogenated oils are out. You can occasionally treat yourself with a sweet or a meat, but again, very small amounts and not even on a weekly basis, that's more like a monthly basis. Now hack number three is something I came up with, which I call the sunshine diet. And this is based on the ideas of the Mediterranean diet, but it has some little twists on it. So first of all, vitamin D, which is known as the sunshine vitamin, is necessary for the absorption of calcium, which plays a key role in maintaining our bone strength. However, up to 40% of U.S. residents are deficient in vitamin D. So if you eat foods high in vitamin D, this includes things like salmon, sardines, tuna, egg yolks, orange juice, oatmeal, and milk. And if you're lactose-free or lactose intolerant, you want to try things maybe like almond milk, which is my new staple. I love my almond milk every day. Number two under the sunshine diet is to eat foods kissed by the sun. So this is including all of those fruits and berries and vegetables that we just talked about, but also nuts, which are very helpful and definitely part of the Mediterranean diet. And then the third part of my sunshine diet, which is really interesting, is about eating during sunlight hours or what we call farmer's hours. Now, this is the most efficient way to maintain or lose weight. Our metabolism is more efficient during these more daylight hours since it's tied to our circadian rhythms, which is the 24-7 dark light cycles that also help us with sleep. Eating after dark makes the body think it must stay awake since it takes a few hours to completely digest the food. So also eating in an eight to 10 hour window means that we have less time to consume more calories. Now, some people have taken to intermittent fasting, which is kind of similar to eating during sunlight hours. And so you wanna just take a look at eating within those daylight hours really helps to speed up your metabolism and process your food properly. And then also help you get good restorative sleep because it'll be hours before you go to bed since you've eaten. Now hack number four is called eating like the French. And the French do a few things, but two major things that I think are really important for good nutrition. The first is taking baby bites. You know, the French are known for having just very small bites, very small size meals. Their plates are smaller than American sized plates. 
The other thing the French do really well is social eating. So there's something called the French paradox, and that is you get to eat whatever you like, including macaroons, magnificent sauces, mouth-watering croissants, cheese, chocolate, and you're thinking, wait, hey, wait, wait a minute, that's gonna make me gain weight. But the way the French do it is that, again, they take very tiny bites, they don't overload themselves and feel too full, and they also eat very slowly. And part of this has also been studied in terms of cardiovascular health. And some science says, well, it's because the French also have wine with dinner, although it's not a very high alcohol level. Usually it's a red wine with a low level in it. That can be heart protective. But also they felt that having these smaller bites and less food is very helpful. So eating the smaller portions or the baby bites is very similar to what we do in Me Time Monday with everything. Everything is about baby steps. It's about very small, tiny steps that we take to be more healthy in different areas of our life. So baby bites is part of it. You want to eat meat or your main portion, your main meal should be no larger than the palm of your hand. Now think about that. Salad, steak, salmon, whatever it is, no larger than the palm of your hand. If you're going to eat chocolate, have one, not 10. If you're going to eat bread, no bigger than a golf ball size. I know that sounds really small, like a little pretzel pop, but not having a whole lot of bread is something that's really important, but you can still have bread on this French diet, which is great. And as I said, you want to eat socially. You want, this is mindful eating. So a study in, in Japan showed that those who eat slower are less obese. So from the first hunger pains to satiation, it takes about 20 minutes. So our brains need that long to process that we no longer need more food. So if you're stuffing everything into your mouth within 15 minutes, your brain hasn't caught up yet with what you just ate. The slower you eat, the more your brain is now interpreting what it has in terms of fuel. And it says, okay, I've got enough. You can stop now. So the slower we eat, the better. Most French don't eat a meal faster than 30 minutes. And in fact, most meals are around 60 minutes. And also there's conversation between bites. There's no smartphone activity where you're just scrolling, scrolling and eating, scrolling and eating. You're actually having a conversation. So you're engaged in social activity while you're eating, which also helps you eat less. You also need to chew your food optimally. So bites are fully broken down because we don't want anybody to be choking out there. So 15 to 30 chews per bite is what is recommended by the Cleveland Clinic. And as I mentioned, hydration is so important for our health. You wanna hydrate while eating. So if you have a glass of wine, that's fine, but you want it to be no more than four ounces a day. And that's about a half typical glass of wine that we might get poured. And after every sip of wine or food that you eat, you wanna take a sip of water. So try not to eat in your sweats. You know, the French are very fashionable. And if you're dressed for work, then you'll take more care and eat more slowly and stop sooner and your pants won't have the need to expand. And no eating in the car ever. I'm a bad one for this. I've done that, I have to admit. But have a little fruit or a protein bar in your purse or glove compartment for an emergency. But just make sure that you're not eating everything as fast as you possibly can. So those baby bites are really important. So with that, we hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caring Club on-air podcast feature a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And you can check out more great wellness articles on our website and from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly self-care plan to balance body, brain, and a busy life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and other listening channels. Check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Just click the podcast tab. And also you can email us or send questions or comments to podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling and I wish you all to take care and stay well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. You can check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com on the podcast tab. And you can email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Take care and stay well.